Amen. What a great time of worship. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. Welcome to the family room of Revelation Rock. This is the family room where sometimes our kids run around like crazy and we sing some songs, sometimes we cry, sometimes we laugh. And um, one of the things that has been on my heart for a long time, and I've not necessarily walked it perfectly, is that from the standpoint of the leadership here at The Rock, um, it's my desire and it's our desire as a team to uh, implement a culture of gratitude. Um, it's not to inflate egos or anybody or to motivate people with public recognition, but but it's my intention to be careful to show genuine gratitude to each person who participates in all of the details that make this happen. This is We're part of the body of Christ, and just like our earthly bodies, if things stop functioning, they die. And if we all stop functioning, this body would die. And um, over the last six months, we've underwent at the Rock some major shifts and responsibilities in our leadership and Whenever leadership changes take place, there are many things that end up up in the air. It's like, and I know it's not, I learned this morning again, it's not basketball season, but like a jump ball, the ball's up in the air, who's going to get it? And there's a lot of things that end up, and our, our transitions and stuff have been no different. Um, Tammy Borses has such a very unique skill set and um, also a very full plate, so when she stepped back into what she's doing right now, um, there was a lot of things that ended up up in the air. She stepped away from pastoring through administration. Um, during this transition season, literally everyone in our entire leadership has stepped up to the plate, participated in making sure things get done. There is one person, however, who has picked up so very many things that needed done and made herself available to take care of big things, little things, Meetings, details, always there. Every ball that was in the air, she picked it up. Her heart for ministry and the gospel being made known through the ministry here at The Rock was, is refreshing and energizing to the rest of us. Her selfless and humble soul is an inspiration for everyone who serves with her. If we had told her that this was coming this morning, there's a chance that she wouldn't have been here. Um, so we sort of snuck up on her. But regardless, Jane, would you come up here for just a second? We're not going to make her give a speech. That would, I don't want her to quit. <laughs> she might not. She would. But we just have a gift that we want to give you and we want to pray over you. And we're very thankful for all the stuff that you've done. There's been so many things. Like, I, I just scratched the surface. There's t tons of things um, that none of us were really suited to handle. And um, Jane has just stepped up to the plate. She's made communication, she's made connection, she's. Um, just went above and beyond. Like every time we turn around, she's went above and beyond. And so we just have a, we got a card and a gift for you that we just want to say thank you. And you don't need to say anything. We're not going to make you give a speech, but we're going to pray, we're going to lay hands on you and pray over you. So Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for Jane, for the opportunity we have to serve with her. Uh, my kids started calling her, thank you, Jane, because that's all we ever told her. And uh, we just, we continue that this morning. Thank you so much. Lord, we just, it's our heart to show her that we're grateful. Um, we're not trying to inflate anyone's ego, but Lord, we just want to make sure that she knows she's valued and that the work that she does is very important. Uh, it's important to each of us. And so, Father, I just pray a blessing over her life, over the, her ministry, whether it's leading worship or putting lyrics up or, or helping take care of all the other responsibilities she does. Lord, I just thank you so much for sending her to our body. Uh, for all the people Leaders that have that are currently serving, that have been that have served in the past, Lord, I thank you for the culture uh, that is a part of this Revelation Rock family. I pray a blessing over our time of in the Word this morning and our time of uh, fellowship with food afterwards. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Thank you. I'll take whatever fallout comes from that later, Jane. I. I sprung that on her. I just knew if I told her we were going to say anything that there's no chance she would have come this morning. She would have 
like had to cough or just I'm not going to come because I don't want you to draw attention. But I'm, we're just very, very, uh, very, very grateful for her stepping up. And, and through this, uh, last, last week we talked about, um, Proverbs talks about as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And we talked about that, and we actually all got to interact and talk about it, which was super fun. We're going to do more of that in the coming days and weeks and months. We're going to take, take time to feedback. In fact, the, the story that we're going to start today, because we have a potluck, we're going to do our interacting back there afterwards. But we are going to interact on this story coming up. We're gonna, I want to hear what the Lord's revealed to each of you. Um, but we looked last week at how iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We're created for fellowship. God's given us the gift of each other, fellow like-minded believers to serve. We talked last week about the steels sharpening or knocking the dull spots off of our knives um, that we've been given to serve in that role in each other's lives to help straighten out. We looked at one little detail about how a steel works. It doesn't actually make the edge, but it helps to restore the edge because as a knife is used just in its natural environment, just regular old cutting food life, it's not that the edge dulls, it actually begins to bend. At such a fine point, it begins to bend. And how in our lives, the environment that we find ourselves in can do the exact same thing to us. We don't necessarily lose our edge, but we begin to bend. And so we're in each other's lives to help restore that edge. Our lives get our, our witness, our, our uh, belief, our courage. Many of the gifts, even of the Spirit, they can begin, the way they show out of our lives can begin to get bent, can begin to be, just be negatively affected by things that happen in our lives. And as I've thought about this and prayed about this, and, and we've referenced, I talked I talk to Martin before church this morning, and um, I've kind of referenced this story in passing a handful of times in the last six months, and we're finally going to just kind of open it up. It's not a one-week thing. It may not be a two-week thing. We're going to look at a bunch of different little details of this story. But I think about, in the context of what we looked at last week, we can easily think, and I think it's, it's very common in our culture today to just sort of be wherever we are. Like, well, it's or just happenstance, maybe. Like, I don't know, you know, I just happened to be born when I was born, to who I was born to, just happened to be in this time having this conversation with this person, in this relationship with his people. They can seem, our lives can seem happenstance or even, even unimportant. Like, I don't know, what does it matter what I'm doing? What does it matter if I retired? What does it matter if I keep working? What does it matter if I start a business or if I quit the business? Anybody ever felt that where you just sort of feel like I, I'm lost in the just the shuffle, like not real sure how I ended up where I'm at, not real sure where I'm going, I'm just here, and it can feel very unimportant. We looked a, several weeks ago at Jeremiah's life, in the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, we see that God does know us, he knows us before we are, which is something we can't even begin to fathom in our finite understanding, but this morning I want to look at somebody who is in a place, in a specific time, to change the course of history. And it's easy to, to, you can look at some of these stories and we can be like, yeah, rah, rah, I'm gonna go change history. But it's, it's little things, it's a series of little things. It's, life isn't always roses, is it? Things don't always go just as planned. And as I just talked, it's in those not as planned moments that our, our edge can be dulled and it can push, push us into the category of our faith where we're just sort of, eh. Like maybe there was a point in time in your life where you were locked and loaded, ready to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe it's following a tragedy. Maybe it's following something great in your life and you're, man, I'm ready to bring the gospel. Maybe you've seen a, a miracle, you witnessed a physical manifestation of a miracle, and you are ready, man. You'll blow the doors out of anywhere with what you've got. And then over, so over time, life happens. And we, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm circling back, but just bear with me. Those things that are, maybe don't go as planned. Maybe you're going to share the gospel with somebody, and it kind of ends like a small atomic bomb in your face, and the relationship's over, and it's like, ah, you know what, I think. And it can put us into that place where it's like, I kind of know where I'm going. I, I know that I believed in Jesus, but as far as like getting involved in this whole Christianity thing, it's like, ah. Because, and here's, what, here's the case that I hear people make. I, have you seen the world? Like the world's a mess. 
And it's going, I mean, it's getting worse. It, arguably, it's getting worse. Things are not going, it's not like, wow, going swimmingly better now than it was five years ago. It seems like maybe you could make the case it's going worse. So, I mean, I don't really want to get any on me. I'm going to just sort of stay, I mean, we can gather here as long as it doesn't get too hot and doesn't get too much attention. We'll just gather here. But as far as like going out and really engaging, you know, like if you're that knife in the knife block, it's like, I don't, I'm going to hang out in the knife block, but I don't really need to go cutting anything. I don't need to go do what I, it's like, because I tried that before and I got a dull edge. I mean, it's like I went into, we was ready to cut a piece of chicken and it was great. Then I hit a bone and it's like, I don't want to do that anymore. I, I'm, I know I'm a knife. I'm good to go. I'm in the block. I know I'm good to go. I'm just going to kind of hang out back here. Maybe you've been there. And, and also combine that with what we just talked about. Like, I'm not real sure how I got here or I, I don't know, like what I'm doing. I lack some, maybe some focus. I'm not sure it matters, so I'm just going to hang out. Meh. You want to go share the gospel with somebody? We're going to go walk the streets of Toledo. It's like, I don't know. You're going to share the gospel with people on the street in Toledo? Like, how are they even going to receive that? And then what if they know something about me and they're like, you're a hypocrite? I was like, Case in point, I am. What am I doing here? I should go home. And so we can, life can take us out. You see what I'm saying? It can just, just neutralize us. You know what it means to neutralize something? It's just to make it of no effect. Like it's not going to, it's not positive, it's not negative, it's just sort of, nah, I don't know. Maybe we used to would have spoken up in faith. After some not as planned things take place, we can be more apt to just sit back. I'm not going to speak up in faith. I'm not going to participate in our culture for the purpose of the gospel or propulsion of our faith. It's just, that temptation's there. And you might be in a role in life where you're a big part of the machine, of the, of the plan of the gospel going forward. Or you might be in a spot where you're like, I don't know that I'm that big of a deal anyways. We're going to look at both of those this morning because the reality is it doesn't matter. You know, anybody ever seen a, a watch, like the inner workings of a watch? It's, you know that there's no part in your watch, like I don't have one, I've never worn one, I do too many things that it'd get caught on, but the inner workings of an actual watch, there's no part that's less important. There's pieces that are smaller, but it's not like, well, that part is less important. Like the big gear, the big, the one that you see like on the like clocks, you see like the, the one TV, the one movie producer that starts with the clock turning. Maybe that was from the 90s, but there was a, when a movie started, there was this thing as you saw the inner works of a clock. It's like the big gear, that's the important one. No, it's just bigger. In your, in your watch or in your grandfather clock, you open it up, there's big parts and small parts, but you know what? There's not any unimportant parts. Let's just think about that. It's like, well, but I could be the unimportant part. No, you can't. You take any one of those pieces out and the clock does not keep accurate time or possibly time at all. There is nobody in the body of Christ that is any less important or any more important. The story we're going to start today, and I say start because there is food cooking back there. The cupcakes at the end, don't worry about it. I tried them in there. Don't even waste your time. I wouldn't. I would because I care about you. I would do it, but I'm just saying you guys don't need to. We're going to just start the story today, and we're going to start looking at the, at the story of Esther. Esther's an interesting character. Her life is, um, we have a glimpse of it. We don't get decades and decades of her life. We get a little bit of it. But it's a pretty important little bit of it. If you got your Bibles, you can find your way over to Esther. We're going to look at a few different things. And I encourage you... Um, I don't give, I'm not like a homework kind of person. I was homeschooled, so I don't even know how homework works. But I would encourage you to take, Esther's a short book. Take the time, in the next couple of weeks, I'm not preaching next week, but the following week, between now and then, take some time. It's an easy read. You can read the book of Esther before your coffee's gone in the morning. It's only like nine chapters and it's a good story. And the more you read it, the more little things you'll see. And you'll see, huh, I never knew that. Huh, I never knew that. That's interesting how that worked. But I want, we're going to look at an overview of it today. Um, the book of Esther takes place during the time when the Jewish people were uh, in exile. 
Now, they'd been in exile for a while. They'd been carried off in exile. One wave had already returned to the Holy Land, but there was a whole bunch of them that were still living in the land of the Medes and the Persians. The Babylonian rule had come to a close. King Cyrus had been the king of the Medes and the Persians, and now it was his kid that was on the throne. Pick up in uh, Esther chapter 1. We're not going to read the whole book today. We could, but we're not going to read the whole book because remember the cupcakes. But it came to pass in the days of King Ahasuerus, which is Xerxes the first, is who we're, that's how we know him in secular history, who reigned uh, over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. It was, this dude ruled over the largest empire to date. It was a big outfit. Uh, in the third year of his reign, uh, I skip, sorry, verse 2, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, or Susa is our secular, where that's what we know it in secular history, Susa, or Shushan, the, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants and the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. Verse 4, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from the great to the small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. It goes on to describe all kinds of the, the things that all went on during that feast. It was a big deal. It was an extravagant deal. It was not all about worshiping God. Esther, the story of Esther takes place not in a Judeo-Christian country. It does not take place in a primarily Jewish country. There was no fear of the Lord, not a lot of fear of the Lord present in this culture. It was fairly secular. Now, the king Let's see, I gotta, let's see, let's, in accordance with the law, uh, the drinking was not compulsory. Verse 8, the king had ordered all the officers of the households they should do according to each man's pleasure. Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded a whole bunch of set, these seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people, the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. He's got a trophy wife and he wants to show her off. He's pretty blitzed at this point and he's, I wanna, I wanna show her off to everybody. Well, she doesn't comply. I'm gonna, we're gonna kind of work our way through this because there's some details I wanna get to. She doesn't comply. She's like, I'm not doing that, which is probably wisdom, but it also cost her her crown. She loses the crown. We skip ahead to verse or to the beginning of chapter two. After all these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus, Xerxes the first, subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's servants who attended him, verse two of chapter two, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let the beauty preparations begin. Sounds like a beauty pageant, but it's not. The culture of this day, this was a mess. This is, this is I mean, this is a mess. This is much closer to child and human trafficking than it is a beauty pageant. There, you see, these people that were all, that were all they, saw, they saw all their beautiful young virgins, they, weren't, uh, they didn't, were not asked, would you like to participate? They were compelled. They were taken. They were snatched and they were taken. And it wasn't because they wanted to make something great out of them. They wanted the king to get what he wanted. You see how, you see the culture that this is, I just want to paint this, we're not looking at every detail of everything here, but I want to paint the cultural picture. This was a messed up culture. This was a society that if we found ourselves in as a Christian, it would be very easy to say, I'm going to kind of just sit and hold mine right, right now. I'm not going to engage. This is messed up. This culture is, I, I don't think I want to engage in this. Not participate, but engage in the culture. This culture is messed up. It's easy. Anybody ever heard that today? 
Anybody ever, maybe you never heard it spoken exactly like that, but just that implication, it's like, I don't know, man, it's messed up. I'm not going to get involved. Maybe I'm not going to, like, look at how the, the world's kind of, I mean, what can, anybody heard this? You're all staring at me blankly. Anybody ever heard this? What's the point? Like, what's the point? Can I get a what's the point right here? What is the point? This king literally does whatever he blame well wants. He's in charge of the greatest empire the world has ever seen at this point. He's at least Gen 2 of royalty. He's never been told no, except obviously the woman that did lost her crown. It wasn't like he was able to say, oh, I respect you as my peer, Queen Vashti. He's like, no, you're done. I don't, nobody tells me no. Let's not engage in that culture. Can I get a what's the point? You're not going to change this culture. There's no, there's no changing this guy. Does this guy look like somebody that you could, you know what, let's have a reasonable discussion about the immorality of what you're proposing. You know, I don't think that what you're suggesting is really a, um, a godly thing that we should do. What do you think that kind of conversation has? What effect does that conversation have with this guy? He goes on. I stayed so long in one spot that my notes went dark on me here. <clears throat> then it says, uh, let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. You see, this queen thing, we think of queen like number two in all the kingdom. It's like there's some weight here, but it's like it's queen in title. We're talking title here. Whatever, it's, you can be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now, in verse 5, in Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimea, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, it would be his cousin. She was, we believed, to be much younger, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. So her situation just got worse. She's in a nasty culture. She's beautiful in a nasty culture in the capital. She's in the bit, like, she's where they're starting this search for this human traffic deal that they've got going. And now she doesn't have her parents. Now she's an orphan. Now we don't know, it, she had been raised by Mordecai, but she didn't have a relationship with her mom. She didn't have a relationship with her dad at this point. Like her life, if you were gonna make the case for just sort of a what's the point, I'm not gonna, I, I mean, poor me. Like her life is not going well. Her situation was not one that was like, this is, you know, what, could, what else could go right for her? It was not going well. She was beautiful. We had that. That's all that we really see where it's like, you know, things are happening for her. No, she was an orphan. She was dragged out of her homeland. Her parents were gone. She's in the capital, and now they're starting this search for pretty ladies. So it was, verse 8, that the king's command decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Well, things just got worse. It just keeps, like, it's not going, it's not going well. You could make the case, as we talked last week, as iron sharpens iron, but as, as our environment can dull us, you can make the case that she doesn't have an edge anymore. You see the comparison? We looked at last week, like, things, just the environment we're found in, the circumstances, things going on around us, the fallen nature of this world, it can have the effect to just affect the sharpness of our edge. She don't have an edge left at this point. It's like things are not going well for her. But interesting, her name in Hebrew is Hadassah, which means myrtle. It's the female noun of the word myrtle, which is a myrtle tree, and it's symbolic of blessing and provision, a tree that springs up. There's some neat things in here. Her name in Persian is, is uh, Esther, which means star. So she's a star that springs up. 
There's some neat things. You know, the Bible is so rich and it's a commentary on itself and there's all kinds of stuff. We're not even going to scratch the surface of all the things that are in this story today. So she's named with, there's a prophetic nature to her name, but she's in a place in her natural society, in her environment where it would have been quite comfortable to just sit and risk nothing. Let history unfold. If you continue in this story, you can fill in the blanks. We're going to look at, let's see, verse 9 of chapter 2. We're going to, I had, uh, Jody, I had thought we would be further at this point. We not, might not make it to chapter 4, so just bear with me in chapter 2. Uh, verse 9, now the young woman pleased him, uh, now the young woman pleased him and she obtained his favor. This is of Haggai, the custodian, okay? Verse 9, and he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance or her allotted things. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. So there's this slight shift. She's taken from her home, but she finds favor in the eyes of her overseer, and he sort of gives her a little extra stuff for this task at hand that she's gunning for becoming the queen. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people that she was Jewish or family, for Mordecai, her uncle, had, her cousin, had charged her not to reveal it. He had told her before she went, keep your mouth shut about who you are right now. Just shh, keep your mouth shut. Every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. He was concerned. Even though she wasn't his child, she had raised him as, he had raised her as his child, and she, he cared deeply about her. Each young woman's turn came to go in to King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. This dude thought of himself very highly. He was vain upon vain. He needed, thus each woman needed to be prepared for six months with one treatment, six months with another treatment. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the woman's quarters to the king's palace. She could dress however she wanted to go in. In the evening she went in, in the morning she returned to the second house of the women. So they came from this house, they go into the king and they go to the next house. So we're not like talking back and forth. To the, in, to the second house of the women, the custody of I can't pronounce that, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by name, called for her by name. So this is not a mystery. No one's like, we don't have to go into the details, but no, this isn't like, oh, I wonder what they talked about all night. We know what happened here. It's not really like a stunning moral display. Verse 15, now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken, in, taken her in as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, remember she had found favor in his eyes. Nothing but what the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace the tenth month, which is the month of, month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. King loved Esther more than all the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head, made her the queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. He proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. At this point in Esther's story, like, just, just quit. Like, just Hold your cards and live the life. Just let history unfold. Even, her li even though her life had not been perfect, she was finally in a place of security and standing. From the natural view, this is the perfect time to sit down and shut up. Like, it, it, the path to get there, not a glorious one. But her society was so perverse, immoral, and ungodly. And like I said, even her path to the throne wasn't exactly a primrose path. This is not something you want to tell your great-grandkids about, how she got to the throne. So 
story continues. In verse 19, virgins were gathered together for a second time. Mordecai, her cousin, sat within the king's gate. Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as her cousin Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. There's this little thing that takes place right here that sets the tone for the rest of the book. Verse 21 of chapter 2, we see in those days, at that point in time, she's the queen. While Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, they became furious and sought to lay hands on the king. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both men were hanged on a gallows. It was written in the books of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, still hanging out by the king's gate, and he finds out something, a plot. He takes it upon himself to pass that information on to his adoptive daughter, to his cousin, the queen, and she passes it on to the king. Saves the king's life. Like, if a person was to pick a story to make a movie out of that would, if you took Bible references off the top of it, would blow every movie out of the water. This is the story. Like, the twists and the turns and the plots, like, there's all kinds of plot that we haven't got to yet that happen in this story. It's an amazing story. I encourage you guys to read it. But I I want to look at some more details as the story continues. She finds herself in the capital city, Susa. She lived during the time of the exile. Everything in her life was not going well. She's snatched up, placed in the uh, harem of the king, becomes the queen. Her cousin finds this plot out to take the king's life. She steps in and stops it. This woman, there's so many details I want to look at. This is a side note, but I just want you to be thinking about this. Does anybody know who Esther was? It's not, we don't talk about it a lot. She was King David's great niece. Her grandpa was David's older brother, one of the ones that when Samuel went to pick out the next king, he's like, well, it's not this guy. He was big and strong. That was her grandpa. Which means she was a descendant of Ruth and Boaz, who was descendants of who? Rahab the harlot. This woman's family history is a little sordid. It's not like, well, I don't know, she's just like some random Jewish girl. No, now, this lineage plays no role in the story, but it's worth noting. She's got some family heritage here. It's just... Now, this is a side note, but it's just fun, and I told Martin this this morning. He's like, I'm not... You know, he, he loves history. Martin's, he just... He doesn't love history. But this all took place right around the time, anybody ever seen the movie 300? That's when this was taking place, right around that same point in time. This is the king of the Medes and the Persians during the battle with Sparta. Just a little context. It gets, sometimes I think, you know, we read through, you know, everybody memorizes the books of the Bible when you're a little kid, and it's like, I don't know, Esther. It's like, I don't know, she was like a queen. She did something, and... And then she, like, you know, for such a time as this, yay. And we don't know the story. Like, this is a cool story that God recorded for us for a thousand different specific purposes. One being, and we're going to get to this, to reveal little bits and pieces of the coming Messiah. We keep going. Now we got to get, we still don't have the real bad guy of the story yet, do we? Verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, that advanced him and set him in the seat above the princes who were with him. The king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Mordecai understood this dude's a dude. He's a fallible dude. I'm not bowing before him. But what do you think that did to Haman? It wasn't like, oh, there's an outstanding person of high character. No, it made him mad. Absolutely made him mad. When it happened that they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, and they told it to Haman. That was verse 4, sorry. 
uh, to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told him that he was a Jew. Verse five, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with rash, with wrath. <clears throat> but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of, ha- of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So he hatches this plot. He's going to destroy all the Jews because this one guy won't bow down. This one guy who happens to be the queen, the newly appointed queen's adoptive dad and cousin. So we're going we're to execute all the Jews. He hatches this plot. We'll fast forward through some of this in, ex, uh, in Esther 3. That he hatches this plot that on a certain day, all throughout the kingdom, remember, is this a small kingdom? No, this is the largest kingdom in the world. There's Jewish people everywhere because the Jews had been displaced. So they're all throughout the whole kingdom. And he's like, open season. He sets a day. He actually casts lots to set the day, which we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. He casts lots to set the day. And he's like, we're going to, everybody can just kill all the Jews on this day. You see, this is, sometimes I think in the, uh, in the, when, as we study history, we look at contemporary history and we're like, that's the first time anybody ever thought of some of this stuff. This has been going on. There has been war against God's people forever. As long as God's had people, there's been enemies for it. We get to this, this plot is hatched. In verse 15 of chapter three, we see that the couriers went out. You see, they did not have Twitter or X or Facebook or any of that. So they sent couriers out. Hastened by the king's command and decree which was proclaimed. Verse 14, sorry, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province. I should have started up higher because you go up here at verse 13. It says, the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to what? Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is in the month of Adar, to plunder their possessions. And then in verse 15, we see the couriers were sent out, hastened by the king's command and decree, which was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. You don't say. It was perplexing. This guy hatched this plot because one guy offended him. He hatched this plot. We're going we're gonna to execute all the Jews. And then he leads his king unbeknownst in a degree to the king is like, I don't know who all these people are, but I suppose we probably should kill them all. If you think it's a great idea, let's do it. So he signs this whole, it's, it's a law. It's an irrevocable law. Signs it, sends it. Unbeknownst to him, his queen happens to be a Jew. This is, you see, are you following the plot? My intention this morning, we're gonna get to, there's a few takeaways we're gonna get to today and we're not gonna go real, real super long, but my intention, I would like to encourage each of you to, you know, you ever, anybody ever seen a, a movie trailer and when it's over, you're like, I have to see the movie. In fact, if it's playing now, I should go right now and see it. I, there's a handful of movies where you watch the trailer and it's like, yes, 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 I must see it. Take my money, I gotta go. That's, there is a story in here that is riveting. And this is in scripture. This isn't like a secular novel. This is right here in scripture, this story. And it gets, it gets deeper and it, gets, it just keeps going. In chapter four, we see that when Mordecai, remember this is the cousin, learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth and ashes. He knew what was happening. He had heard about it and then he, he read the decree and he's like, this is bad news. Puts on sackcloth and ashes, went into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Verse three, and in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. The queen was deeply distressed. I'm gonna move really quick because there's, one guy I really want to get to before we're done today. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told him, or told her the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai to take his sack. She didn't know what was going on at this point. She's like, I don't know what's going on, but you should not be in the, by the king's gate in sackcloth. 
but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hetak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he, appointed, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. What are you doing down here? This is embarrassing. I'm not sure what you're doing. She didn't know what was going on. So Hatak went to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. You see, that was, that was in the plot we skipped over in three. Haman bribed the king. He's like, I'll pay you all this money if we can just execute all the Jews. So Mordecai told, told the Hatak all of the details of this. The sum of money Haman promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction. Here's the evidence. It's not just hearsay. I'm not just here like, I don't know, this is what I heard is going on, so I'm in sackcloth and ashes. He's got documentation. He's like, this is what's happening. He sends it with this guy. Was given a shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her that he might command her to go to the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Hetak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hetak and gave him a command for Mordecai. Verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, we all know one thing. What's that one thing? Any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been summoned or called has one law to be put to death. So this is like a no-go place. This is a great plan, cousin Mordecai, but we're not gonna follow through because then I'll be put to death. Unless the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter, except, sorry, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king for these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Verse 13, Mordecai told him to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king's palace any more than all the rest of the Jews. In other words, this decree is gonna take your life just like all the rest of us. Verse 14, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Verse six, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them to return Lie to Mordecai. We're going to finish four, and then that's going to, we're going to wrap today. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, three nights. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded. Esther chapter four, we see she agrees to help her people. She's at least gonna attempt to. There's a couple players in this chapter. There's a couple, couple roles. We got Mordecai. He sees what's going on. He's seeing it with honest eyes and understanding. He's like, this is not gonna go well. This guy has absolute power. You know, you remember in, in uh, government, learning government, you talk, an absolute monarch? You remember, you remember the words? In, it's like, that, it's really easy for us to understand in our English. Absolute, miss, nobody argued. You didn't argue with them. You didn't make, it's like, well, you know, I don't think that's very fair, king. It's like, fine, we'll cut your head off first. That's how absolute monarchs ruled. This guy was an absolute. And Mordecai, he sees that. So his role is pretty clear throughout this whole book. He's like, the voice of wisdom He's also the voice of courage. He's willing to do some hard things. We'll pick up on more of that in the coming weeks. Then we got Esther. She's sort of thrust into the story, even though the book's named after her. It's like, ah, it just happened to be real pretty. And she's got that, what we talked about in the beginning of the service today. We talked about happenstance. Like, her life just kind of happenstance. Like, I happen to have become an orphan. I, I happened to be pretty. I happened to be still in this capital city so she wasn't overlooked. And then she happened to find favor and all this sort of happenstance. You see that in her life where she can just kind of fall into that. I don't know, like, I'm not real sure why I'm here. I, I'm not like real super courageous. In fact, can kind of be feeling like, you know, the way I got to this, it's not like, if she knew anything about her Jewish heritage, it's like, I'm not real proud to be the queen that I am. Like, I mean, I kind of slept my way to the top here. I, I don't know that I should be really like standing up for morals and like let's, 
she was, that's her role. She's kind of like the happenstance person. But there's another person that's really, really important in chapter four that we see. And he gets no credit. I've never heard anybody point this guy out ever. The king's eunuch, Hatak, or Hatach, however you pronounce it. I've pronounced it about four different ways, so pick whichever one you want. You say, what's his deal? He's not a big deal. He doesn't even have a family lineage. He's a eunuch. He's not going to have any kids. He's, what's, what's his role here? You know his role is one of the most important roles in this whole story. He's the one that carried the messages. He's the one who told the truth. You don't think he had the opportunity to change the story. You don't think he understood who, where his loyalty should lie? It's like, nope, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna tell the truth. I will carry the truth from the queen to this guy who she didn't, they didn't know who this guy was, and then from him back to the queen, back and forth. He's this yo-yo, he goes back and forth. It's like, okay, I'll go tell her. You remember that, and I don't, like if there's a point in time in your growing up years where it's like, I really wanna go out with that girl, but I, why don't I find a friend? I'll get a friend, and I'll ask her, could you talk to this girl? And you do the whole go-between things. Was I the only one that did that? I feel like I'm the only one. Where like you send somebody, and then it's like, what did she say? Well, I never told her. Well, why not? I've been on pins and needles for a day. This guy served in this go-between world, which if you remember from your childhood, that was the worst place to be. You either wanted to be the one sending the messenger or the one receiving the messenger. Being the messenger, it's like messengers are always the ones that get shot. This guy is so pivotal to this story. You see, he repeated intricate details he repeated bold instructions. He reported accurate truth. When we read the story of Esther, when you hear the story of Esther, when we teach it in vacation Bible school or in, in, in to our kids' classes, when we've learned it in our kids' classes, it's all about who? Esther. It's right there at the top of the page. Esther. That's who the story's about is Esther. Sometimes in our lives as believers today, and we've talked so much about this in the last couple of years, but it's easy to look at this story and say, where am I in that story? We're gonna look, we're gonna see there is glimpses of the Messiah and the coming new covenant all through this story. But what we tend to look for first is us. And it's easy to say, well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not like a, I'm not in a position of power here. It's like, I, I don't know, I'm not, you know, for such a time as this, that's a great thing. That's what we take away from this. And that question is etched on the columns of history. I mean, that is, you want to hear messages preached in a time, you know, whenever the church or Christendom or a nation is like, we're here for such a time as this, buddy, that preaches. But maybe you're not in that role. Maybe you are in the role. And honestly, I declare that we are in the role of this eunuch, Hatach. What's your job here, church? What's my job? My job is to tell the truth. My job is to carry truth from the source to those who need it. This guy's an unsung hero of this story. He, if he had failed, the Jews would have been annihilated. And we would not have the book of Esther. We wouldn't know anything about him. He's like, I don't know, the, in Xerxes the first at his reign, all the Jews were exterminated, and that was kind of the end of the story. This guy stepped up, and he told the truth, and he kept telling the truth, knowing, knowing a few things. I'm not going to harp on this, but he was a eunuch. He wasn't going to have any, he wasn't like, a, like, oh, I really want my kids to find favor. It was just, there was nothing to be gained. He was not going to be promoted. He was not going to be given the choice of all the harem. For, it was pointless for him. He had nothing to gain, but for the sake of the truth, he told the truth. For us as believers today, are we willing to say, my job is just to tell the truth. I'm just going to tell you the truth. Esther 
was in a specific place in time. We're not going to even we're not even going to touch on the finishing of the story today. There's so much more to it. She was in a time and place where there was tremendous opportunity and so was the eunuch Hatach. He was in you know, his name's repeated over and over in chapter four and then nobody, nobody even, usually we skip over it because it's like, I don't know how to really pronounce that. It's a weird name. But at any rate, we, are, we picture this. When I was growing up, I'm, I'm be honest, I'm, I'm harping on this, but for a reason, when I read this story for most of my life, you picture it as though Mordecai is talking to Esther and Esther is talking to Mordecai and Mordecai is talking to Esther. It's like, wait a second, there's a conduit in there. There is somebody in there that is an unsung participant in this story that is of equal importance to the speakers. We don't see any of his thoughts on it, but his role is of equal importance. They were in a place, a specific place, that could have very, very easily been construed as happenstance. She just happened to be the eunuch that happened to be on call when they said, hey, the queen wants to send a message to this guy. All right, I'll go. What if, there's so many, I, I, I encourage you to imagine, as we say in our house, imaginate. That's what Tay always says. We like to imaginate here. Imagine this story. Get in this story and think of all of the different people that were participating in all of these things taking place. They were in a specific time that could have felt very happenstance. They could have easily identified and said, I am going to be a victim and I'm not participating in anything good taking place. In fact, I'm going to sit down and cry. I am a victim. Both of them, all three of the people that we just looked at could have very easily par participated in that way. I'm just going to sit down and be a victim. But she agrees to help her people, at least attempt it. The word hatach, the name hatach, means verily or truthful. I love that. It was a, one of the last things I looked up on this whole message. I'm like, what, what does his name mean? It means verily. Anybody know what Jesus always says? Verily, verily, or truthfully, truthfully, I say to you. Whenever Jesus said that, we're always like, listen up. This is not just true. This is true, true. This is truthfully true. That's what this guy's name meant. Don't you think, that's not an accident. He wasn't, his name didn't mean liar and then he's the go-between for the saving of the Jewish people. No, his name meant truthful, verily, truthful. I love that. Incredibly important. This story of Esther, we're gonna look at a couple little things here as we close. This story of Esther in scripture is First and foremost, foreshadowing of the deliverance coming in the form of Jesus in the new covenant. There's subtle details that point to Jesus. We didn't get to a bunch of these. The one that I'm gonna mention that we did get to is uh, her request. Verse 16 of chapter four, if you wanna bring that up, Jody, it says, go, this is her instruction, sent through verily, verily, truth teller, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and what? Fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days and three nights. What is this a picture of? Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, For as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is just one little look there's a bunch of these that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Foreshadowings of the Messiah. There's a bunch in this story. This is the only one that we made it to where she says, fast for three days and three nights. It's this little glimpse. Just like in Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights and then Jesus quoted it. There's, this, there's these correlations all through scripture. These connections all through scripture that point to the Messiah. I got all these other ones, but we didn't make it to those. <laughs> uh, with all of the symbolic references to the coming Messiah, there's a bunch of them, and we're going to keep looking at them. There's also things that can be gleaned for us practically. You understand, first and foremost, all Scripture is pointing to Jesus. 
John 1, we see that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we look at Scripture, first thing, priority number one, look for Jesus. Let's find the Messiah. Let's look for the new covenant. The things that are foreshadowing, things to come that, particip- that, that have to do with us. But there's layers to Scripture, right? There's only one interpretation, only one, what the words ever meant is what it's always only ever going to mean, but there is many applications. Understand the difference of that. There's only one interpretation. People want to come to you and they're like, well, that's your interpretation. Well, we're just going to interpret it however we blame or want, and then the word will say whatever you want it to say. But there's one interpretation, but there are many applications. So though there are all kinds of symbolic references to the coming Messiah and the new covenant. There's also layers of application that have to do with us. As I said, Mordecai's question, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this, is apropos for us today. One that lends itself to courage and boldness, stepping up to the plate wherever we find ourselves. That's a question for us today. You can feel happenstance. I look from this side all the way over here, including myself, and I see all kinds of vocations, all kinds of relationships, all kinds of positions in the world, all kinds of positions and activities in the church. It can feel happenstance, can it? It can feel just like, ah, you know, I kind of got this job and I'm doing this stuff and I talk to this person and, you know, there's different things. I think... My brain just scrolling and things that each of you have shared with me, think conversations you've had, statements that you've made, scripture that you've shared with people. And it can just feel happenstance. Like, you know, I'm not real sure, you know, like we kind of, we started, I think of Jerry and Jill, we started with this, you know, Revelation Rock, we weren't we really sure and it can feel, it can feel happenstance, but it's not. You were known from your mother's womb. You were ordained, you were called, you were set apart. Whether your job is to be a verily, verily truth teller or whether your job is to step up in courage as Esther did or whether your job is to be in Mordecai's role, advising, speaking truth to someone who has the ability to make decisions. Whatever your call is, whatever your thing is, it's not like, well, it's just sort of whatever. Like, I don't know. It's kind of happenstance. And Esther chose not to allow her path to the crown to disqualify her from service. That was an abrupt shift, but it's important. She chose not to allow her path to the crown to be like, well, you know, I can't, I'm not gonna, I mean, I can't be, I'm not gonna get involved because, like, you know how I got here. The point is you're there. Esther and Mordecai weren't living in a perfect situation. They were surrounded by secular and pagan culture. Greed, lust, hatred, deception, murderous plots, power plays, sexual misconduct. They were the norm it's like, wait, shut off the news quick. It's like that's where we find ourselves. We might not be living in the Medes in the days of the Medes and the Persians, but the same kind of stuff is going on today. They didn't allow these factors to sideline them from society. There's so much of that goes on in the church today where it's like, I'm not gonna get involved. What's the point? You may be in a spot, and this is tying back to last week what we talked about, iron sharpening iron. You might be in a spot where you're like, I would love to step up and be iron in that man's life or that woman's life, but, you know, what's the point? It's just happenstance. I just happen to know them. I just happen to work with them. I just happen to pass them in the halls coming to and from work. I might just happen to be in their family. Let us choose to engage our culture with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's be truth tellers. And just like that, the eunuch, Hatak, or Hatach, I can't pick how I want to say it. I don't know how I want to say his name. I'm going to just go Google how you're supposed to say that name. But just like him, he had nothing, there was no earthly gain for him. He wasn't like, I'm going to get myself a new position. I'm just going to tell the truth. I'm just going to take the truth that I know. I'm going to tell it to the people that I'm called to tell it to. Like, okay, you want me to tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the truth. Let's choose to engage our culture with boldness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would, stand with me this morning. We got a whole bunch more to go in the book of Esther. Go home, read it. We're gonna do some feedback in coming weeks about this, and there's a bunch more in the story. We're gonna find Jesus in this story. 
We're going to continue. There's repeated references to this new covenant in this story. We're going to find, we're going to look at. But this morning, we declare this morning that we are the righteousness of God created in Christ Jesus. We are born again by grace through faith. We're filled with thanksgiving in all circumstances. Not because of all circumstances, but in all circumstances. We declare that we are blessed and highly favored. It's because of this blessing that we have through Christ that we step into our messed up world and the culture that we find ourselves in, we step into it with boldness. Confident, not in ourselves, but in the Holy Spirit who lives within us to give us the words to speak, the actions to do to reflect the goodness of our God to our world through the gospel of Jesus. We know this world isn't our best friend, hasn't been fixed yet, but we know that greater is he who is in us than he who is, within the, is in the world. Father, we just come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts, thankful for all of the generous hands that have prepared food for us to eat, the potluck this afternoon, Lord. Thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for your attention to detail when you record stories for us. That it's not just haphazard journalism, but it's detail, specific, personal. Father, I thank you for the story of Esther, all the little glimpses that we see of you in this, the things that we see for us in it, for our day-to-day, for our Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Fridays. Lord, we know that the gospel is bigger than our Mondays through Fridays, but it's in those, Lord. Thank you that you've called us to courage and that you've given us everything we need for it. You've called us to boldness, Father, and then you've promised to never leave us nor forsake us, so we're able to be bold. You don't tell us, go be bold, good luck. You say, no, I'll go with you. Righteous or bold as a lion. Father, I pray a blessing over this body as, as we go from this place, as we step into our world. Father, may we do so with that boldness of a lion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.